readings today is from the book of Ezra, 1 1 to 2 2, and then 2 64 to 70. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put, in, put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And the people of any place where survivors may now be living are to provide him with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had had them brought by Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the king of Judah. This was the inventory, gold dishes, 30, silver dishes, 1,000. The priests, the descendants of Jedidiah, through the family of, of Jeshua, of Immer, uh, 973, of Immer, 1,052, of Pashur, 1,247, of Harim, 1,017. Oops, sorry, I think I skipped over. Next, we're going to go jump down to 64 to 70. The whole company numbered 42,360. Besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants, and they also had 200 men and women singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, uh, sorry, when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their abilities, the ability they gave the treasury for this work, 61,000 drachmas of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, and the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people, and the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everybody. There are going to be lots of opportunities to mispronounce names over the next nine weeks. <laughs> um, but you did a great job, Rob. <laughs> I, I skipped over most of the census so, so that we didn't have to trudge through all of those names. 
Now, there is a book that is called The World's Worst Predictions. It lists some of history's all-time all worst guesses. So here are a couple of the top worst predictions. King George II said in 1773, so this is the King of England, that the American colonies had little stomach for revolution. In 1800, a professor said that rail travel at high speeds would be impossible because passengers would suffocate. The Titanic, prior to its maiden voyage, was declared unsinkable. In 1939, the New York Times said, well, the problem with TV is that people had to glue their eyes on the screen, and we know people don't have the time for that. One of the co-founders of Warner Brothers asked during the era of silent film, who the heck wants to hear actors talk? We aren't very good at making predictions, are we? One American financial journalist said this. He said, the rule of staying alive as a financial forecaster is to give them a number or give them a date, but never give them both at once. In other words, keep the predictions vague. Now, I'm not a big gambler anymore. When I was seven years old, on the other hand, you couldn't stop me. It all started at school when I got really, really close to guessing the exact number of M&Ms in a giant bowl on my teacher's desk. You would have thought that I could predict the future at least based on the way the other kids who were nowhere close treated me. Well, I internalized this bit. Uh, this, I internalized all of this a little bit. You know the way kids do when they're worshipped. So my next opportunity to strike, the UK National Lottery. Still seven. It's around Christmas. My extended family goes berserk over the lottery at Christmas time. While everyone's talking about the ginormous prize money, 100,000 pounds, or 100, 100 million pounds, and I felt lucky. So after I told everyone about the whole M&M incident, we were basically planning our vacations to the south of France. They all knew I was too young to buy a ticket myself. Was this a problem? No. My uncle Doug drafted up a contract with me, saying we would use my numbers, his money, and we split everything 50-50. They told me the rules, six numbers. Guess between one and 59. If you guess all six, you get the prize. They way fed my ego, asked me how I would spend my money, how I would deal with all the fame. I near convinced myself that I had divine revelation. And when the results came back, I only got one number correct. I was humiliated. I lost my credibility as a prodigy fortune teller and I don't have a stomach to gamble anymore. We aren't very good at predicting the future, are we? On the other hand, when God tells you something's gonna happen, well, that is something you can bet your bottom dollar on. I'll, I'll say it again, if God shows you a glimpse of the future, that is no gamble at all. God knows that as a people, we need hope to navigate a world of brokenness. We need to cling to and rest in promises for a better tomorrow. And so what does God do? God pulls back the veil 
and shows us glimpses of what he has in store. Our surest hope is found in God's promises. For the Israelites, God uses the prophets as his mouthpiece to tell them what's going to happen. Now, to catch us up to speed, there are two major power shifts in less than 100 years among the superpowers in the Near East. As many of you will know, Assyria is the superpower that takes over the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC. Babylon is the next major superpower that takes over in 612 when they storm the capital of Nineveh. About 25 years later, the king of Babylon, you'll know him Nebuchadnezzar, stretches out his reign of terror over the southern kingdom of Judah. And Jerusalem falls in 586. He lays flat the temple, and many people are deported as slaves to Babylon, exiles. Only those who are educated, able-bodied, so-called useful in Babylon are taken. Now, less than 50 years uh, go by. It's 539 BC, and, and that's where our passage starts. We learn that Babylon falls to Cyrus and the Medo-Persians. So that's the third major superpower. So this is an era of shifts of major superpowers that give rise to the Persians, which is really the first major empire. In Jeremiah 25, God foretold a few things. He foretold the fall of Jerusalem. So this is before 586. And God foretold the eventual fall of the Babylonians. In Jeremiah 29, we read a familiar verse. It goes, For I know the plans I have for you. And he's talking to Israel. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. God speaks hope into their situation, saying, I'm in control. I know what's going to happen, so trust me. Habakkuk, another prophet, said that God used the, the Babylonians to discipline Israel. But in Isaiah 44, God says that Jerusalem will be inhabited again. And actually, in Isaiah 44 and 45, God calls Cyrus, this Persian king, by name. And he says that he'll bring about the fall of Babylon. He calls Cyrus my shepherd that will accomplish all that I please. All of Isaiah 45 is written to Cyrus or about the work of Cyrus. He says this, I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city, my city and set my exiles free. But not for a price or reward. It is rare even for the Bible, for, for prophecies to get this specific, naming names of people not even born yet, to do tasks that were conceivably impossible. These are UK national lottery odds. But one of the most amazing things about these two books, Ezra and Nehemiah, is that everything God promises happens. Everything God promises happens. God is the grand chess master. He's not only thinking eight moves ahead, but he sees the entire game laid out. Every move, every possibility. He knows the outcome. So as a brief overview, since we're just getting started on the series, when we consider the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, we should be aware that, that actually they were written as a single document by a single author. The separation of the two books happened years and years later during the, the late medieval period in the Christian tradition. The book is a unified work. It's called Ezra. 
And actually, breaking it into two parts can be a little bit misleading, since there are three major events that happen in the lives of three leaders, rather than just two. Ezra 1 to 6 focuses on a man named Zerubbabel. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. <laughs> Uh, it's a name which means planted in Babylon. So, so Zerubbabel was probably born in, in Babylon. It's probably less than 50 years old. Shortly after Cyrus, the, the king of Persia, takes over Babylon, Zerubbabel leads the first wave of Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. It's a process that takes over 20 years. The second half of the book of Ezra, chapters 7 to 10, focus on Ezra himself, who arrives with a second wave of exiles to Jerusalem, some 80 years after the first had arrived. So there's, there's a division that, that actually takes place in two different times. He's a community leader, Ezra is. He's a scribe, he's a priest, and he has a heart to teach the people the Torah. Now, Nehemiah, the third person, um, he was a government official in Babylon. He returns at the same time Ezra does. And as a book, Nehemiah focuses on a building project to fortify the city of Jerusalem because it is at risk of being sieged by, by its neighbors. So he builds a, builds a city wall. Each of these three stories actually have a very similar structure, a literary, literary structure. Uh, first, the king of Persia sends one of these leaders to Jerusalem. There's a reason for it. They have a task. The ne next thing that happens, their efforts are opposed. And finally, each leader overcomes the opposition, but not in a happily ever after sort of way. There's an anticlimax in every story. I would say beyond the, the geographical relocation and the building projects, this is a story of God calling his people back into relationship with himself. Especially under the, the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, it's a time of covenant renewal and reform remembering, recalling, teaching the law, the book of Moses, the Torah. Ezra was a reformer, like Martin Luther, like, like John Calvin. They have a concern for purity and holiness and firm community boundaries. And there are some really beautiful moments in the books, moments of, of repentance, of revival, making covenant. And they, they all play a part in, in the backdrop, which is a... a crisis over national identity. It's, it's, who are we as Israelites, as post-exilic Israelites? And there's a frailty behind everything that they do, because while they start with sky-high hopes, as soon as these leaders look away, things fall apart. The people defile the temple, they break the Sabbath, they continue to marry from among the enemies of Israel, Moab and Ammon. These are people that have historically led Israelites into idolatry. These are some of the reasons that, that Israel went into exile in the first place. And the leaders, arguably, are no better at, at times. They show their own brokenness. The book of, of, of Nehemiah ends with, with Nehemiah's zealotry. He is beating some, some people, some men who've married foreign wives, and, and so-called pulling out their hair. These books show us that the second exile, from, or the second exodus from Babylon, this exodus to the promised land, was only one step towards the fulfillment of all the promises of God 
every promise that God made to his people because God knew we couldn't maintain the law and keep our hearts fixed on him. We needed new hearts. So the books show us that, that they point to, they promise even, this ultimate realization of God's promises to be found in Christ. All right, so that's, that's enough of an overview. Let's, let's look at our text today. The first thing we, we should see in our text is, is hope. Hope should, is written all over this text. It, it pervades it. Even in the darkness, there is always hope because God keeps his promises. Verse 1 tells us this. The Lord moved in the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout the realm and also to put it in writing. Now consider that. God moves in the heart of a polytheistic world leader in order to fulfill a promise he made years before to rescue his people from the Babylonians and return them to the cities of Judah. He made that promise to fulfill another promise he made to Abraham years earlier. Now let me just reiterate, God changes the heart of a polytheistic Persian king, Cyrus, to act like a shepherd for those who were taken captive into Babylon. God is like a composer that operates on a geopolitical arena. God is like a composer. Recently, I've been, I've been listening to, and, and I often I do listen to the, the music of, of the award-winning film composer John Williams. And some of, some of his scores he's worked on for, are for movies like Star Wars, Jaws, Superman, Indiana Jones, E.T., Harry Potter, Jurassic Park. It's amazing that this guy worked on all of these iconic films. They're so recognizable. The themes build and glue the story together. They're moving. They make, uh, the, the songs can make you love or hate the characters. Um, a film composer guides the story like reins to a carriage. And, and John Williams in particular, he, he's one of the best. God's like a composer in this way. God moved the heart of the king to care about something that he should have no inherent reason to care about. Why should you care about the captured slaves from a previous war when you overtake the superpower that had just had enslaved them? Why should you care to return items ransacked from a temple in Jerusalem? Why care about these people's welfare at all? The short answer is that God moved him to do it. Remember, Cyrus is prophesied by name by Isaiah years before. Years before. It seems like years before he was born. God's like a composer who works on a global scale to bring his plans to place. And that's why hope pervades this. Because God keeps his promises. There's always hope. So that's the first thing. The second thing that we see in this text is God's purpose behind it all. God takes initiative to move the heart of Cyrus, but why? Why? God, I would argue, has more in mind than simply returning those taken into captivity. We see God orchestrate two things in this first chapter. First, the return, but second, the rebuilding of the temple. The rebuilding of the temple, I think that's significant. So verse 5, five says it this way. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up to the place to, to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. The, the house of the Lord meaning the temple. The rebuilding of the temple. What's so significant about this? 
I say this is significant when we remember the reason they, that the Israelites were taken into captivity in the first place. It was because of their idolatry, their wickedness, their hard-heartedness. God uses the Babylonians, according to, to Habakkuk, to discipline the disciples and bring them back into relationship. He allows Jerusalem to be ransacked for his house, the temple, to be laid bare. He allows all the temple relics, the golden dishes, the lampstands, everything of value to be, to be taken out of the land. And he shows his people what a godless world looks like. And God himself is the one who brings the renewal. He does it in his timing. I would say Zerubbabel, the one who's tasked with rebuilding the temple, I say he gets this. He gets that first things come first. Reestablishing a relationship with God is the point. God has the goal of renewal. The fact that the temple was the first priority shows that relationship with God and restoration is what God has in mind. Return itself is not the goal. Neither is life improvement. Neither is renewal for renewal's sake. Rather, life with God is the goal. And Zerubbabel gets this. This isn't just a relocation project for him. He's tasked with rebuilding the house of the Lord. He had a purpose in mind, and that was to start with God's house even before his own house. Because a relationship with God is at the heart of renewal. So I would say, so those, those two things to think about with the text. So, so hope pervades everything. And we see God's purpose is to call people back to himself, back to a life of worship. The last thing I want you to think about in this text briefly is about God's memory. Now, many of you may be wondering why include a census like this at all in Scripture. Um, so this is talking about chapter 2, all of the listing of names. We didn't take time to read it closely, and that's partly because it would take a real scholar to dig into the significance of each of these people's stories. But what God reveals about himself through the census is that he knows his people by name and that he preserves them generation to generation. Now, 42,000 is the number it lists, and that's about the population of Beverly. It's amazing that God knows each of them by name. God's promise isn't to, to, to restore people in general. He's not like the owner of an ant farm that, that just knows that he has ants. He knows our stories, and he welcomes us into relationship with him. And that's important because it shows God's heart, and it gives us reason to trust him. He doesn't forget us. The three things I highlighted in this text are the hope that pervades it how relationship with God is at the heart of everything, and how God remembers his people intimately. We serve a relational God. Today's passage only sets us up for the rest of the story that follows, but it's pregnant. It's pregnant with hope. These families who journeyed back to Israel are leaning on an opportunity that God presented to them. For the Israelites, if God's promises were true in this instance, and they're big promises that came to pass, naming the king by name who would deliver them from the hands of the Babylonians, bringing them back to Israel. If God is true in these promises, well, they had cause and hope to trust in the other promises of God made to the prophets, like for a future messianic king, the restoration of the Davidic dynasty. 
like for God's promise, God's presence, his, his restored presence in a new temple, like for God's kingdom to reign over the nations. The Israelites held these promises in tension with what they were, what they were experiencing when they returned, which was not freedom. To be clear, they weren't free. They were still a province of Medo-Persia. They were still under the rule of some other king, a polytheistic king. They weren't a freed people. And so they had to hold on to hope that there was more to the story. There's more coming. And we know there was more to the story. There is more to the story. A temple, a geographical allotment, these are only a foreshadow of God's presence in God's kingdom. Christ provides the ultimate exodus from sin for those who trust in him. God gives us Christ to lead us from sin. Our surest hope is found in God's promises. Now, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that hope is a valuable commodity. It's probably the reason the lottery is so successful. God knows that as a people, we need hope to navigate a broken world. We need the hope that rests in the promises that God makes. That knows that if God did it then, well, God can do it again. And God will do it again. We need to aim our hope not just at the benefits of God's promises, but at God himself. Not just at the benefits that God provides, but at God himself. Did you know that God wants a close relationship with you? Did you know that God makes promises to you, never just abstractly to humanity, but to you by name? God makes promises to you. God wants you to be excited about the sort of world where he will walk with you where his peace, his comfort, the blessing of security and identity as his children rest on you. God wants your heart to be renewed so that his promises mean something to you, and not just something, but everything. God doesn't just want... I'll rephrase that. God wants us to be a people with hope. doesn't want us to be short on hope. God wants us to experience the hope that comes from a life changed by his promises. Hope that shapes our inner lives, shapes our relationships, and keeps us close to him. Today, God invites you to know the blessing of a promise soon fulfilled to help you stay faithful. A promise that is strengthened by his history of infallible predictions amidst our world of people that keep their predictions vague and often get them wrong altogether. And of course, for him, we know they aren't predictions at all because he already knows the outcome and the outcome is secure. Our surest hope, the firmest foundation, is set in God's promises. Hear that. Our surest hope, the firmest foundations are set in God's promises. Pray with me. Father, I thank you that you know us and you call us by name. You remember us and you make good on your promises. We thank you that in Christ, those promises are yes and amen. We thank you that we can just rest knowing that you and your work have satisfied uh, the demands of the law, which we were not able to keep in the first place. 
I pray that we would grow in our trust of you and that your hope would fill our hearts today. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.